The goal of it is you get into things and every company has to decide how's it going to spend its money. You define marketing as the overall advance of the business, not just advertising. Not a single muscle, but the whole organism. You plant it, you have to nurture what you plant in the field, and at some point you can harvest it. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast here, episode number 3030. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. Doug, how are you? I'm doing well, Shaheen. What do you think of episode 30? We've been at it for a good while. I know. I was calculating it. It seems like in hexadecimal, we're somewhere around <laughs> 1E or something like that. Not that I really remember how to do that. Well, for those of you who are into hexadecimal, I was told many years ago that if you spell coffee when O is a zero, that is a legit hexadecimal number. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say we don't enlighten them on this podcast. Yeah, know? that's <laughs> So what is the cartoon of the week? We're going to go back to Tom Fishburne who is also known as the Marketoonist. You can find him on Twitter and on uh, Google that way. And this week, he has one with a classic departmental meeting. And the woman at the head of the table says, how are we going to target relevant ads after cookies go away? And we can no longer rely on sketchy third-party data none of us <laughs> trust. And I thought it quite funny for a number of reasons, but I'll let you go first. I think that has been the case forever. And I'm glad that she is pointing that out, mm -hmm. is that how are we going to replace this set of unreliable data with a new set of unreliable data? <laughs> It is odd in business that we face so many choices which are, which version of uncertainty are we willing to accept? Yeah, I think related to this was the article in Wark that I saw Andrew Wilshire, with whom we did a meetup a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And we should point out that video link because it was a fabulous discussion. So he posted this article from Wark that was an open letter by some 17 analytics experts who were raising a flag and warning the CMOs about the perils of AI-driven automated market mix modeling. You read that. What was your take? Uh, I, first of all, let's, for people who might not know WARC, it's W-A-R-C. It's not quite as well known here in the U.S. I had to dig around about it. And I was just looking again to uh, get a clear definition of what it stands for. Essentially, it's a research council on advertising. And they publish a lot of articles and things about advertising and its effects, primarily engaged by people out of Europe. So there's a lot of European and British content on it that's really quite good. What did I think about this letter? Well, let me start with the opening line. More and more providers are offering automated market mix modeling, MMM, systems using AI slash machine learning as cookie-based attribution declines. And they're here to warn us these systems aren't nuanced enough to provide effective measurements. And my first thought was people are still doing that and aren't aware of what kind of ineffective measurement they're getting. I don't know. I mean, I have a little bit of, and I understand why they're writing this, but uh, my first frustration is why are people even thinking that this is a valid way? Why is it even an issue? And it goes back to our cartoon, which is, you know, right now there's a lot of sketchy third-party data nobody trusts that's being, you know, I think what they do is they 
get their cookie data back, that identifies somebody, and then ask an outside data vendor to add tags to it. Like, how old is this person? What kind of house do they live in? What kind of car do they drive if they can get it? And the data is sketchy, not very enlightening, and not highly trustworthy. So the situation isn't very good. So why are they writing this letter at some level? Yeah, what was that research that looked at some of the publicly acquired data and the gender field was less than 50% accurate? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yes. And, And this is when there were only two choices, and it was less than just tossing a coin, as they said. And then age was even less. So nobody really believed in the data that they were getting. There are so many dimensions in this article from the tone, which is what Andrew pointed out, as well as generally valid statement. Data really does need to be paid attention to. But I wanted to just say, okay, market mix modeling. I'm assuming that by that they mean marketing mix modeling. Yeah, uh, fundamentally. I think you know the, a lot of the signers here come from an advertising analysis background. So it could be that for a lot of the signers, they're thinking about advertising mix, media mix model, where you look at, okay, where am I putting my money to be most effective? And I mean, that's the goal of it is that you get into things and every company has to decide how's it going to spend its money. If I have 2 million to spend or 1 million to spend or 10 million to spend or 500 million to spend, I still have to make choices and how do I do that in the best way? And I think it's, it's that's what it's really about. But I think your point was, we really need to look at market mix because it's the whole world out there and not only our advertising that affects. Exactly. My initial response was advertising is not all of marketing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to optimize all of marketing mix, then you have to look at everything else that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now you could say that, oh, if you want to do market research, I will do that. But depending on the market research, maybe it needs to be done elsewhere. If you're looking at competitive analysis, if you're looking at events, trade shows, sponsorships. Actually, ironically, can I add in the ironic thing here? None of us think, I mean, you and I've already pre-talked this through and it just occurs to me, one of the biggest effects on whether your market mix is effective in that spending is whether you've got the right product. Well, in fact, yes, that's right. I mean, I know you could say, well, assuming we have the right product. Well, you don't know that. And a lot of times a subtle product shift can make a big shift in what you need to do in your marketing. Well, in fact, if you do the product lifecycle management PLM right, you don't even build a product that you haven't already verified there's a market demand for it by the time it's going to come out. And it will build the boundary conditions for the product that if you're going to be like six months late, then maybe you shouldn't bother. That sort of a thing. So for sure, exactly. Yeah. Well, I bring it up partly because in the world of complexity where we look at all these interacting parts, you know, your product interacts with your advertising. It interacts with your PR. It interacts with all of this. And we, I think for simplicity, a lot of times that's ignored. And I understand that it makes the models miserable to try to take that into account. But ignoring it for a short time is not the same as forgetting about it. And I think we often forget about it. So that's my gratuitous product rant of the day. Now, I think the part where they are right is that attribution is a challenge. It is. That if you look at market mix optimization as a way of looking at the ROI of each ingredient and then sorting it according to that and then going down the list until you've got enough leads or you run out of dollars and you continuously optimize that, you can't do that, like you were saying in our pre-call, without a proper attribution 
methodology. Last attribution, last touch attribution doesn't quite do it. Multi-touch attribution is difficult and benefits from cookies. So that's really where that comes in. So I thought maybe they could have explained some of that better. But yeah, okay. So if that's that, then AI has a play because AI can say, quote unquote, AI can say that, hey, I can use all the metadata that exists. I can try to put two and two together and triage it and have a model and try to arrive at what that attribution would be. And if I can do it for a couple of few months for you to gain some trust into this, then maybe I can start doing that. And they're raising a flag that that actually is not very often valid and you have to really be worried about it. But then another thing that came out of our conversation, and that was sales cycle. Sales cycle is, I mean, that's what this really is all about. You know, the trick I have with this is you have to understand what it takes for somebody to come to buy your product. And it's really all about that. And you cannot get there purely through arm's length models of any type. So, I mean, let me give you an example. I worked with, and this is one that uh, you and I didn't talk about in pre-show, but mm -hmm. when I worked with the drill doctor, drill bit sharpener, they had gone to an ad agency. The ad agency had done traditional phone research to figure out if there was anybody out there that wanted to buy it. And the phone research question was, they gave them two sentences about what the drill doctor, drill bit sharpener was, and then said, how likely are you to buy this? And they scored a two out of five. Well, a two out of five on average is a kill this product and walk away now. Mm. kind of an, an average. However, when I looked at the research, I said, good grief, you're trying to describe this to people? So for example, in our work, where we went fundamentally back in research, we discovered people didn't know that drill bits could be sharpened. Mm. So their first challenge in selling the product was to tell people drill bits can be sharpened. Well, that wasn't anywhere in that phone survey. You know, there's none of that stuff. Nobody even knows they can sharpen it. Nobody knows why they would care to sharpen it. And that's what we learned. So we did media that informed them of that. Well, that changes your marketing mix entirely based on what we learned about that sales cycle. We had a long lead up of information that needed to prepare the sales cycle. Not all sales cycles are that way. You know, I was reading yesterday that a new movie is coming out from Studio Ghibli and brilliant director Miyazaki. And it's called, I think, the Boy and the Heron or something like this. Anyway, it's already in theaters in Japan, which surprised me a bit. Well, I found out why in the article I read. They had always done fairly traditional movie marketing with trailers and TV spots and a lot of PR leading up to it. The Studio Ghibli team, led by Toshio Suzuki, he's the business guy there, decided that they weren't going to do that this time. And so they put it in theaters with no serious advanced marketing. And it's outperforming any other Miyazaki movie that's ever been released. And it's an interesting question because... I mean, I could go write the blog post right now that says nobody ever needs to use advertising again. We see those. Right. All. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's much more useful to look at it and ask why. Why yeah. did it work that way? And you had some thoughts that I think were really useful. I mean, what's going on here? Well, I think in agreement with you, if you don't know your sales cycle, you can't really do marketing. Marketing is all about conversion from one stage to another as you inform the customer on why whatever you have can meet whatever need they might have in a real way in a genuine way, like we said last time around. But also, as we have talked on this podcast, 
when you've already done a lot of advertising, where you already have a market presence, the equation changes for you. Yes. So if you have a Spielberg movie, well, everybody knows it's probably a very good movie. Mm-hmm. So your equation changes. Celebrities in general, we've talked about this, yeah. can benefit from their celebrity status because that is a brand. That is a brand that they're using. Now, the movie better be good because otherwise you're diluting that brand. And now you have to go hurry up and create that celebrity status some other way again. But for things like a Spielberg movie, the history is so good mm-hmm. that, you know, in principle, he could have a couple of bad movies and people would still watch the third one because he's just been excellent, right? And I think that's what's going on here a little bit. Plus, it's been a while since we've had a real Miyazaki-directed movie come out. So I have a hunch there's a latent demand. And Suzuki is known for really doing clever marketing work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he probably understands that. There's latent demand. Why waste money advertising it when that, you know, just saying, whispering almost, by the way, there's a new Miyazaki. A lot of people are going to go, where, when? Yeah, right, yeah. How fast can I get there? And why not do that? I mean, I ran into it another time when the George Foreman grill was being pummeled with media on TV in around 2000. I was working with another client who was also in the small appliance world, and they had a grill that competed with the George Foreman grill. And I said to him, I, you know, one day I'm like, God, why don't you guys do a, a half hour show for your grill or at least some spots for it? They said, we don't need to do anything. It's selling crazy. We can't keep it on the shelves because of the George Foreman advertising. So why should we do advertising if it's already doing well? Uh, and I got backing it. on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think it's the trick with all of this is that you know, we want a magic thing that gives us a universal answer that says this is how we should all spend our money. Except there's no universal answers. There's not even a single answer if you have $2 million and this is you as a company. Because some like, okay, should you spend, how much should you spend in PR? Well, it depends on your PR assets and your experience with PR. If that's really good, you might rely heavier on PR than other things. If it's not so good, you might be better off to go into TV. You know, so it's all, or if you don't know TV, maybe you shouldn't go to TV. So all these choices are not only based on these analytics. Well, absolutely. Now, you had a good way of describing this concept of the plant water. Take us through that. Since I've worked in direct response advertising, I got a lot of look at numbers. But I wasn't ever a pure believer in direct response is the only thing that mattered. So I spent a lot of my mental time saying, okay, now wait a minute. You got the whole thing here. You want to be best result. What all is happening? And I came up with my own model was plant water harvest. That's like maintaining a field. You plant it. You have to nurture what you plant in the field. And at some point, you can harvest it. The trick we have these days is a lot of the media mix modeling and even a lot of econometrics are very focused on harvest. And it's all about harvest, all about harvest. Well, it's got nothing to harvest if you don't plant. So if you look, think about what I said about the drill doctor, that, you know, the people need to know you could sharpen drill bits. That's planting, you know, and nurturing. That's all part of that process. And sometimes you have to be working that 
process instead of only trying to reap leads. And that's frustrating for companies. But I think in, that's the reality we're working with. And no numbers are going to answer every question about how to take $2 million and allocate, you know, this year, how much do I put planting and how much do I spend watering and how much do I spend harvesting? It's kind of, what were we talking about? It's like, it's a judgment call, you know, that you build experience. And you, actually, you came up with the word, we learn our way through them, you know? And I think that's the reality in the market is you have to learn. And that's what farmers do. Farmers learn how to plant and water and harvest to best effect. And they can get a lot out of uh, numeric and stuff like that to help them do it these days. My cousin has a GPS harvester that he gets to sit in the air-conditioned cab and run around his fields, but it still involves human judgment at some point. Well, that's the thing is that the complexity of marketing, and especially if you define marketing as the overall advance of the business, not just advertising, not a single muscle, but the whole organism, then the number of variables is so many that on the one hand, you think that, you know, if this AI thing pans out, maybe it can help me navigate all these multitude of variables that don't fit in any one human's brain. On the other hand, that's not so easy either, because somehow that needs to get modeled. The policies need to be proper. The data needs to be there. The models need to be there. So the whole thing seems a little bit premature. And what comes out in my head is that the complexity, which of course is the book that you're writing for all the right reasons, is really central to this. I'll tell you, that's actually, I, I will argue against the term econometric because it implies far more validity in what comes out of the process than is real. I, you know, I'm trying to write a book with minimal jargon because jargon kind of gets in the way of us knowing what's going on. But I think if you look at every ad campaign from startup, I think your analogy was that when we start up and start into something, we take a best estimate at what the market, what the mix is that's going to work well for us. And then we have to learn from it. We look at what happens. We try things. We're learning. And we're learning all our way through. And our learning ends up cut short if we rely only on last touch attribution, or if we only harvest, we don't learn as well. We have to be learning the whole of our thing. And also the results will show because if you're selling, then great, obviously it worked. And now your challenge is to find out exactly what worked, (laughs) right? Because sometimes you're successful, not for the reasons you think you're successful. That's absolutely right. I mean, when we would release direct response campaigns, the thing I would tell people is first job is do a phone survey, find out what led people to buy because, or who are they that bought? Because you go in with a target market idea. And then you find out somebody else bought the product. You need to know that. You, know? you need to know that. Those that's are right. Things. Yeah. That's all the learning. The yeah. learning is vast yeah. of what we don't know when it comes to marketing efforts. And I'm sure there's a few people out there with bazillion dollar research budgets who are like, oh, how could anybody not know that? Well, I happen to work in the real world of companies who are have a lot going on and they have not enough money to just be dropping it everywhere. And for them, it's tricky. And they do have to decide where am I going to spend money? Where am I not? How do I do this best? Last thought I'll offer to my mind on this is a warning for our listeners. Do not ever go into these things thinking there is a best answer. The reality is we don't know. The minute we find a year where we have a great market mix going on, the next year change. And <laughs> yeah. you know, there are no absolutes on this stuff. We're all having to figure it out. And we figure it out as we go by testing things and working on things. And we get better over time, hopefully. That's right. I think at the end, you want the agility to be able to recognize what changed 
and be able to react to it, or better yet, you be the agent of change and cause the rest of the market to have to react to you. In the sense that, you know, we learn from the interactions we get. And where I thoroughly agree with the group that came out with this letter is they're talking about what I call black boxes, where Mm. you feed in your data and the black box whirs, the lights buzz and flashes, and then it spits out an answer. You know, you do not learn from those. You do not learn effectively. That'll train you according to all the assumptions of whoever created the black box. It won't train you for what you need for your market. It only trains you on the black box. In fact, if you're calling it data science, <laughs> you need to make sure science is in there. Mm-hmm. And science is not for everybody. Science is hard. Science is slow. You have to develop it. And you know th- those understandings take time. Once you get them, that's great. But in fact, that's part of the problem we live in these days is that we've gone way too deep into the lab where science is not quite baked yet, but it provides really juicy news. So you highlight it. But in the course of doing that, you also misrepresent it because it's still it's still being cooked. It's not done yet. So one of the things that we've talked about really is the bigger picture of business and how marketing on the one hand can be defined as promotion only, like we talked last time. And way on the end of the spectrum, marketing is essentially helping run the business and is recommending M&A and it's like growing the business by leaps and bounds and using marketing tools to advance the business, but it doesn't stop there. It's got a real seat at the table running the business. So along those lines, the news that you pointed out with a CMO appointment by GM was indicative to me because that definitely did not look like a CMO that only does promotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So yeah, the news for those who haven't heard it is GM announced this week that they've hired a new chief marketing officer, a man named Norm DeGrave. My apologies for pronunciation. Oh, he's been most recently chief marketing officer for CVS Health and will join General Motors at the end of July. It struck a lot of people I know with a, wait, what? Um, Because drugstores and health to cars seems a bit of a leap. And I thought it was worth kind of doing a quick talk through about this. What did you think? Well, it seems like prior to CVS, he had been with a digital marketing agency where he helped it grow and GM was one of their clients and that he was quite intimate with their analytics and digitizing their marketing. So there was that history that I think obviously was significant in his selection. But what was interesting to me was he did not come across like an ordinary marketing guy. He came across as a total big picture businessman who has grown up through the marketing ranks, including Mm -hmm. digital marketing. He was credited with having grown CVS Health to be one of the more trusted brands and player in the healthcare business. He was credited as having grown even the digital marketing agency from a regional player to more of a a national, international player. Mm -hmm. So that I like. I like it when the marketing person is such an integral part of running the business. 
not just brochures and stuff like we used to joke about. Well, and, and actually, that may be the real brilliance in it. And I hope for General Motors, it really is a brilliant move. Because, you know, when you make this broad of an industry jump, uh, a lot of people are going to go, nah. But there are times when bringing somebody in who doesn't look like the right person is the smartest thing to do. Because looking like the right person on paper often only ensures mediocrity. It doesn't necessarily ensure you found somebody who's going to take your business and do something really clever and really savvy and really smart with it. And I think you're right. The reports on his work at CBS are outstanding. And they're about more than just he knew how to do banner ads well which is kind of the implication with, uh, he was at Digitas. And so I could walk away and say, oh, he's just a digital marketing guy. Right, but the right. are that he grew CVS Health. And also that it was CVS Health, not all of CVS, which also kind of provides a bit of a focus on it that I think actually makes the job a little bit easier because you are very focused rather than get distracted with competing requirements, et cetera. Well, and I don't know the GM bureaucracy very well, but he is directly reporting to GM president, Mark Roos, and that is a good sign. There are more and more days when a CMO reports to somebody else who reports to somebody else who finally gets to the seats of power, and that's never a good sign for a CMO. That's right. I actually have grown to be more and more in favor of a CMO that has a very integral role in running the business, mm-hmm. not just be the department of tasks. You know? <laughs> that's right. The busyness of marketing. Very well. All right. Maybe this is a good place to uh, conclude this episode. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Shaheen. Wish all of our listeners a happy midsummer. Happy midsummer, indeed. Yes. <laughs> all right. Talk to you soon, everybody. Thank you for being here. Take care. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.